Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of SREMI, Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute, the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for information and education purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Before we get going with traumatic dental emergencies, Hans Rosenberg, who masterfully does our best of CGEM EM quick hit series, made me aware of a very important clarification from our atraumatic dental emergencies episode 185, and it's about periapical dental abscesses. In that episode, we lumped together periapical abscess with periodontal abscess and said that they both present with swelling and fluctuance, but alas, we were wrong. It's really only the periodontal abscesses that typically present with a fluctuant swelling. So here's Hans Rosenberg to help clarify what we need to know about periapical abscesses. Hey Anton, hope you're well. It was great to hear the latest EM cases with doctors Ngo and Nash. I really enjoyed what they had to say about non-traumatic dental emergencies. However, I would like to raise a minor concern regarding the podcast depiction of periapical abscesses. The guests frequently alluded to the presence of periapical abscesses being manifested through fluctuance or swelling. While this can indeed be the case, it is more likely that there will be little swelling or fluctuance at all. For this reason, I think it's crucial to delve a little deeper into the anatomical aspects of this condition when considering its presentation. The apex of the tooth is situated at the root's tip, and it resides within the alveolar bone of either the maxilla or the mandible. In instances where a small collection of pus, i.e. an abscess, forms within this region, you are unlikely to see much external evidence of this due to the abscess's location at the apical foramen. Therefore, it is important to note that its visibility might be limited. Unless it has established a pathway towards adjacent tissues, leading to a drainable structure known as a perulus. The occurrence of pronounced swelling linked to a periapical abscess is plausible, but again, it is imperative to acknowledge that the classic periapical abscess often lacks prominent external features. While periapical or panoramic radiographs, along with computed tomography, have the capacity to identify abscesses, I regard this primarily as a clinical diagnosis based on the appearance of the tooth, presence and duration of the pain, sensitivity to percussion, and other features that were well-reviewed in the podcast. Of course, emergency physicians should always be on the lookout for complicated abscesses, which usually feature swelling, trismus, fever, or lymphadenopathy. Lastly, a periodontal abscess, which is really distinguished by its distinct location and different causes in comparison to a periapical abscess, typically presents as a conspicuous inflammation around the gingiva encircling the visible lower margin of the affected tooth. It is worth noting, however, that periodontal abscesses are infrequent and represent a minority of the abscess cases encountered in the emergency department. I hope this helps to clarify dental abscesses a little for your audience, and I'm really looking forward to part two of this podcast. Welcome to part two of this two-part podcast series on dental emergencies. In part one, we covered atraumatic dental pain pulpitis, pericoronitis, dental abscess, deep fascial plane infections, and all kinds of other great stuff we could sink our teeth into. 
Our guest experts for this series are Dr. Chris Nash, EM doc, and Dr. Richard No, oral and maxillofacial surgeon, both from Massachusetts General in Boston. And just to refresh your memory for part one, our general approach to dental pain is to divide patients into traumatic and atraumatic. And we talked about the atraumatic cause of dental pain in part one. I'd like to dedicate this part of the podcast to traumatic dental pain. So first, Dr. No, can you give us a general sense of the spectrum of dental traumatic injuries and a simple way to classify them? So yeah, we can start with the basic anatomy of the tooth. So each tooth has a crown and a root. The portion that is closer to the crown is called the coronal portion of the tooth. And the part of the tooth that is closer to the root is called the apical portion of the tooth, which is why we call them periapical abscesses, because the abscess forms around the bottom of the root. And so each tooth has multiple layers to it. The outermost layer is known as the enamel, and this is made up of a compound called calcium hydroxyapatite and is one of the hardest substances in the human body. Just deep to the enamel would be the dentin, and this is the largest component in the tooth and appears yellow in color. And this lies between the enamel and the pulp. And then finally, at the deepest portion of the tooth is the pulp. This is the innermost portion containing both the nerves and also the vascular supply of the tooth. Um, And this is actually the portion of the tooth where we experience inflammation for pulpitis. And this is the part that is removed when the patient gets a root canal treatment in the outpatient setting to save teeth that may otherwise be extracted. That was a great overview of the basic anatomy. Uh, Just to remind us, I have to admit, I haven't looked at tooth anatomy in about 20 years, so (laughs) that was excellent. And so, of course, with trauma, my guess is that you can traumatize any part of the tooth. Uh, What are your sort of broad categories of trauma? The big buckets that we can categorize trauma into would be some sort of fracture, whether it's a fracture of the crown or the roots, and I'll go into a little bit more detail of that in a second. Or we can have luxation, subluxation, intrusion. These are all situations where the tooth is moved out of its original position to a different position, and it could become mobile or is just placed in an abnormal position. And then finally, we have avulsion, which is when we have complete removal of the tooth out of its socket. And so oftentimes patients with avuls teeth will come to the ED with a completely missing tooth, or they could come to the ED with a tooth in their hand that might have been knocked out from some sort of traumatic incident. All right, great. So suffice to say, there's fractures, and then there's, I guess, displacement of teeth, and that can be a subluxation or luxation or full avulsion of the tooth. Correct. And Dr. Nash, which types of dental trauma are the most common and the most time-sensitive? How should we think about the ones that we need to worry about now and the ones that we're most likely to see? I think that's a good question. The reality is your patient probably won't distinguish between what's the most time sensitive and what hurts and is wiggly and abnormal to them. So my suspicion is that they're all relatively equally likely to show up to you. So I'll just talk about all of them. Dental subluxation, which is a reminder is mobility of the tooth without significant displacement of the tooth. And the uncomplicated enamel dentin fractures of the crown are the most common types of dental injuries. Subluxation should be treated with a dental splint for at least two weeks and typically follow up outpatient thereafter, ideally with an oral surgeon, but recognizing the limits of where you work may be a regular general practice dentist. Uncomplicated enamel fractures are fractures in the tooth that don't extend down to the level of the pulp. 
In other words, the most superficial layer only. These tend to be relatively asymptomatic and don't require urgent attention. These should be followed up with observation and just in an outpatient dentist's office. I maybe will amend what I said before. These are probably the least likely to show up in your ER, but if they do, you should feel assured that these can be discharged without too much risk. Simple, uncomplicated fractures it can extend into the enamel and or the dentin, but they don't go all the way down to the pulp. These patients can be advised to keep their tooth fragments for potential rebonding as a temporary restoration at an outpatient dental clinic. This is the one that we all think about for board exams and also in real life. If a tooth fragment is brought into the emergency department, it can be rebonded, and this can be completed in the hospital by either consulting an OMFS service if you have that, or dental services similarly. Alternatively, this can be done outpatient. The fractures that go all the way down to the level of the pulp, enamel dentin pulp fractures, do result in exposure of the dental pulp to the oral cavity. These patients are often in a significant amount of pain with sensitivity of the teeth as well. And these patients ultimately will require either root canal or extraction of the tooth in an outpatient setting. If this is not performed, the patient is likely to return to the ED with an infection or worsened dental pain. So this is someone that you immediately need to treat to the best of your ability to try to prevent bad outcomes. If you have calcium hydroxide available, this can be applied to the surface of the pulpal exposure. In other words, the pink part that you will be seeing visually, you would apply it there. I've also heard of some people using Dermabond or other similar compounds, whatever they have available, to try and help give the patient the best chance of a good outcome. And these patients should follow up with a dentist, preferably within one week of discharge. I guess to summarize, I would say the emergencies are avulsions, intrusions of greater than three millimeters, and complicated fractures involving the pulp. Those are the most time-sensitive things. And dental urgencies would be uncomplicated fractures, the luxations, the subluxations. Those can be followed up outpatient without too much risk of bad long-term consequences for your patient. Excellent. Great summary there. So it's really the avulsions, the intrusions more than a couple of millimeters or more than three millimeters, and then those fractures that involve the pulp. And again, that pulp, you'll see that little pink dot or you know millimeter or two when there's a fracture through the tooth. If you see that pink, you know that that's a dental emergency and that needs immediate attention. I just want to go back to the basics here for a second and talk a bit about primary dentition versus permanent dentition because that's going to make a big difference in terms of what we do for these patients. You know, a four-year-old who gets their teeth bonked is very different than a 30-year-old who who does. So Dr. No, could you just remind us, please, of what we need to know about the so-called baby teeth and adult teeth and like when we should be worried about these emergencies and do something about them or when we can say, oh, that's fine. Those are just the baby teeth. So in terms of talking about adult versus colloquially baby teeth, it's important to just go over and review over the number of teeth that we have at baseline. And so for adult teeth, we have four quadrants. We generally have 32 teeth in total, but some patients might have congenitally missing teeth. And some patients might have supernumerary and a greater number of teeth. Generally, these 32 teeth are split into four sections. So we have both the maxilla, the upper jaw, and the mandible, the lower jaw. And we have both the left and the right sides. And so each quadrant, starting from the center and going posteriorly, we have 
the two incisors. So these are your central and lateral incisors. And then just lateral to that, we have the canine. And lateral to that, we have our two premolars. And finally, we have in the most posterior region, the three molars. And the third molar being what we call the wisdom teeth. And so that, again, to review, that's four sections with eight teeth in each section, totaling 32 adult teeth. These adult teeth are also called permanent dentition, permanent teeth, or succedaneous teeth. And then for baby teeth or for deciduous or primary dentition, these teeth begin erupting from the first year of age, and they should be present there by around age three. And then as throughout childhood and until roughly around 12 years old, the patients will begin to lose some of their primary teeth and some of their permanent adult dentition will start to erupt. And so pre-adolescents generally have mixed dentition consisting of both deciduous baby teeth and also the succedaneous permanent dentition as well. And as far as how many primary teeth we have or pediatric patients have, they have 20, 10 in the maxilla and 10 in the mandible. And this consists of two incisors, one canine and two molars in each of the four quadrants. Okay, so knowing all this about how many teeth you have as a baby, 20, and then how many you have as an adult, 32, generally speaking, and that all the baby teeth there are present by about the age of three, and then the adult teeth start to come in around the age of six, how does this affect how we're going to approach them in terms of dental trauma? Right. So generally, if there's any sort of avulsion of baby teeth, it is not recommended to re-implant these because it could lead to something called ankylosis, where the patient's baby tooth would get stuck in that position and it would affect the eruption of the subsequent um, adult teeth. So practically speaking, if you've got an eight or nine-year-old and they have some baby teeth and some adult teeth, how do you know if that's a baby tooth or if that's an adult tooth? Sure. So with adolescents who are in mixed dentition, as in they have both baby teeth and adult teeth, I would recommend that if there is any sort of dental trauma or avulsion of any sort to consult either a dentist or an oral maxillofacial surgeon, because it can be difficult to tell the difference between baby teeth and adult teeth. And so the thing that we want to avoid and the pitfall that we want to, we want to avoid is to not replant baby teeth back into the oral cavity because it could lead to complications such as ankylosis, where it would affect the ability for the adult dentition to erupt properly. All right, got it. I want to talk a little bit about dental trauma imaging. Dr. Nash, which patients with dental trauma require imaging? You know, there's the Panorex view or the panoramic x-ray view. There's a chest x-ray to rule out an ingested or inhaled foreign body. There's CT, of course. Which one of these do you do when? Yeah, that's a common question. Well, certainly the chest x-ray there's sort of only one indication for that, and it's just to make sure a tooth didn't end up in the lung. If it ends up in the stomach, that's it, not ideal, but it's not quite as uh, dangerous, we'll say. Where I work, we have access to panoramic imaging, which you can imagine swings an x-ray around the entirety of the mouth, looking at all of the teeth as well as the mandible and the maxillary structures. And that's helpful for specifically if you're trying to look for fractures outside of just the individual teeth. Some people have the ability to to do dedicated x-rays, but if you just see a simple fracture, that may or may not actually be indicated for you in that moment, except to know that pretty much any intervention, a provider will get pre- and post-procedural imaging. If you don't plan to do a dental splint 
or any other sort of interventions, you may not necessarily need to do dedicated imaging. If you are going to do something like a splint, then you really should do imaging. Lastly, CT, I would say, is generally speaking overkill for simple dental fractures. If you're trying to make 100% sure there's no mandibular fracture, then absolutely that makes sense. And and sometimes you're trying to do a CT image in setting of someone who may have sustained extensive facial injuries, and you're trying to find other fractures, in which case that's a very reasonable option. That's great. I love hearing from an emergency physician who practices in the U.S. that uh, doing CTs is overkill. Um, excellent. <laughs> Dr. Nash, before we get into specific dental injuries, I want to talk a little bit about some general principles. So what are some of the, just the general concepts that we need to know about when managing dental trauma in the emergency department? Sure. Let's talk about some of these general principles. Root fractures, you'll identify this because the tooth is mobile. These really should be splinted. If there's a large area involved where you might suspect an alveolar fracture, meaning that it's the ridges of the teeth that are broken, this really should be consulted. You may try to splint as best you can to get them to the consult, but this is really one that a specialist should see. Complicated fractures with exposed pulp should be covered, as previously mentioned, in calcium hydroxide if you have it available. If you don't, we'll talk about some things you might have sitting around that we can use, but that would be the best option if possible. If a tooth has been fully avulsed, this is another common board's question and a real-world thing to think about, milk is preferred generally over saline as a vessel for the tooth to be transported in. If it's been greater than 20 minutes out of the mouth, you should soak it in saline for 30 minutes and then a doxycycline solution for 5 minutes, reimplant it, and then splint it. When you're trying to figure out where to splint the tooth, The best guide is to use occlusion. In other words, how the teeth come together when the jaw bites down. That'll be your best way to visually try and put it back in the right place. The same way you might try and put a vermilion border back together. You want to try and get the best cosmetic outcome and just use the anatomy around it to help guide you where it should go. All right. Some great principles there. So just to review... Root fractures where the tooth is mobile should be splinted. And if there's a large area involved, like an alveolar fracture, you really should get a consult immediately. The complicated fractures with an exposed pulp, so that's that little pink thing that you'll see, they need to be covered preferably with calcium hydroxide. For an avulsed tooth, milk is the preferred solution to put the avulsed tooth in. Saline's your next best bet. And then in order to know how to splint it and where to splint the tooth, occlusion is the best guide to get that proper position after splinted back in place. All right. I want to talk a little bit more about tooth avulsions. So we've already mentioned that milk is your preferred liquid to put the tooth into once it's been avulsed before it's been reimplanted. Dr. No, aside from putting it in milk or saline, what else do we have to know about storage of the avulsed tooth? Right. So... Again, like we talked about previously, the most time-sensitive dental injury is avulsion. It's important to ask the patient how long the tooth has been out of the socket. If the patient cannot be seen immediately, then the avulsed tooth or teeth should be placed, again, in milk, preferably, and then saline um, as a second choice, and then finally water. 
And something really important to note is that both the physician and the patient should avoid handling or touching the root whenever possible. And so we should only hold it by the crown of the tooth. And the reason why we need to do this is to maintain the vitality of something called the periodontal ligament cells, the PDL cells. And these are the cells that are on the outside surface of the root and are important for reintegration of the tooth back into the alveolus, which is the surrounding bone that the tooth sits in. So again, to review, the physician should avoid handling the root so that we can best maximize our chances for successful re-implantation of the tooth and reintegration of that tooth. If the tooth has been out of the socket for more than 20 minutes, it is important to place it into, again, milk, saline, or water for 30 minutes and then to soak it in a doxycycline solution at a concentration of one milligram per 20 milliliters of saline for five minutes. What this antibiotic does is it helps inhibit the bacteria growth in the pulp, and it improves the chances for revascularization and reintegration. Um, we would then reimplant the tooth, and this can be done slowly and with some careful digital pressure. And then after you replace the tooth back in its original position and everything looks like it's in the right place, then you would place a dental splint and you would have the patient follow up with an oral maxillofacial surgeon, preferably in the outpatient setting uh, within uh, a week or so. And um, important thing to consider is that the long-term prognosis of the tooth is generally inversely correlated with the amount of time that the tooth has been able. So this is time sensitive. And the sooner that you're able to have the tooth reimplanted, then the better chances for that tooth to survive in the long term. Great point. All right. Let's say we have a patient that we've done all of that and we've reimplanted the tooth. You mentioned splinting. I wanted to get a little bit more into that and what our, our best choices for splinting are. Dr. Nash, what are the best methods for splinting or reimplanted tooth in the ED? You know, I've seen using the metal nasal bridge from an N95 mask. I've seen surgical glue like uh, Dermabond or Swift Set, I think are some of the brands that are used out there. What's the preferred method to splint a tooth? And if you don't have the preferred method, what's your next best go-to? The best equipment to use is the equipment you have. And I've worked in emergency departments that have a full dental tray, which I think is probably fairly uncommon for a large percentage of the listeners to this podcast. But man, in this day and age, everyone's got an N95. And so if that's what you have, then that's what you have. The best equipment to use, and we can definitely provide visual examples and videos of how to use the equipment, would be the same equipment that might be found in a, in a dental office. And the things we like about that are the use of a flexible splint, given that rigid splinting in general can result in ankylosis of the tooth. If you have none of the things that you might hope, then you can use the, the metal nasal bridge from a respiratory mask. Dermabond has been used in the management of intraoral emergencies for both fractures and avulsions, but it's a temporary solution as long-term bonding ability hasn't been well demonstrated. And just as a reminder for what Dr. Noah was just talking about, try your best not to touch the root of the tooth at any point, as it could damage the periodontal ligament. You want to always hold on to the tooth by the crown. You had mentioned that the best thing is to use a dental kit, but could you just go through for us, maybe Dr. Noah, what you would typically find in a dental kit and how you would use the splint that's, that's available in most dental kits? 
so a dental kit for the purposes of treating dental trauma and to do splinting in the ED consists of wires, some wires, 18 or 20 gauge wires, as well as some composite material, which is essentially this uh, material that solidifies upon use of a curing light. It's similar to the material that's used to create your fillings in your teeth and some wire cutters. That's the final thing. Um, and essentially what you do is you take these wires, you place it over the region that would like to be splinted, generally about two teeth on either side flanking the tooth that has been avulsed. And you use the composite material to hold the, the metal wire splint in place. Um, the curing light is used to convert the liquid composite into a solid one that then adheres to the tooth and adheres to the wire. Fantastic. And for these patients that come in with an advulsed tooth, let's say you've reimplanted, you've splinted, do these patients require antibiotics, Dr. No? Actually, there is a lot of controversial research on this issue at the time, but antibiotics are generally not needed or recommended for these dental traumatic cases. Patients can be prescribed chlorhexidine um, as a sort of mouthwash, like a higher-powered mouthwash to keep the, the region clean, but a antibiotic is not necessary. Now, a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Metricade system is partially tech and partially a professional service. The web-based tool allows me to let Metricade know exactly how I want to be scheduled. The technology and the expert schedulers work together to produce a schedule that somehow meets the needs of the department, filling every shift while still letting me work more of the shifts I want and fewer of the shifts I don't. When you have a problem, there's an expert scheduler answering the phone who probably fills 2,000 to 4,000 ED shifts a month. They know all the intricacies of ED scheduling. This is not an automated push-button schedule. The technology is a tool to help an expert build a schedule to suit your needs exactly. Go see for yourself at metricade.com slash emcases. Dr. No. There's all kinds of different dental fractures. We've touched on this briefly, but could you just go through for us the different types of dental fractures that we need to know about? You very nicely outlined the dental anatomy. So this is where really the anatomy of the tooth becomes extra important because my understanding is that the way that you'd categorize dental fractures as complicated or uncomplicated all depends on where in the anatomy of the tooth the fracture goes. Yeah. So just to review again quickly um, over the anatomy of the tooth, out on the outermost layer, we have the enamel. Just deep to that, we have the dentin. And finally, the innermost portion is the pulp. And so depending on where the fracture is, will determine what kind of fracture we classify it as. And so uncomplicated fractures fractures are fractures that involve either the enamel or the enamel and the dentin. Once the pulp is involved, then it's considered a complicated fracture. And then the final kind of fracture is known as a root fracture. Um, and this would be a fracture that involves the dentin and the pulp um, at the level of the root, so not the crown of the tooth. Okay. So uncomplicated involves the enamel and the dentin, and complicated involves the pulp and or the root. Those are the ones that require a surgeon generally. Right. Let's get into the treatment of each of those then. So Dr. No, the uncomplicated ones, the ones that just involve the enamel or involve the enamel and the dentin, how do we treat those in the emergency department? 
for the uncomplicated fractures that involve just the enamel and the dentin, if the patient comes in with the actual fragment, then the fragment can be put back into place and splinted with something called copac. Or if this patient cannot be seen in a timely manner, they can also be seen in the outpatient setting by a dentist as well. If they do not have this tooth fragment that is missing, then unfortunately, not much can be done other than some pain management and then just outpatient follow-up. If it's a complicated fracture, as in there is exposure of the pulp and a portion like a pink dot can be seen at the surface of the tooth. In this situation, calcium hydroxide should be applied and this helps with the healing process. And how this can be done is calcium hydroxide generally comes in two portions, a catalyst and a base. And what you want to do is you want to mix these two portions in an equal ratio on a mixing pad and then dry the surface of the tooth either with air or with a gauze. And then one would place a small amount of this mixture onto the exposed surface, which would then dry within minutes. And this would help with the patient's dental pain. And again, after this is done, the patient should follow up with a dentist because they would need to get a root canal done in the outpatient setting. And if for whatever reason you don't have calcium hydroxide or a a dental kit for a dental fracture, is surgical skin glue like Dermabond or or SwiftSet, is that adequate to glue back together a complicated fracture? Well, there seems to be some evidence that this can be used for at least pain relief. There have been some studies, one of of 39 patients with dental pain from cavities who presented to the ER mean pain scores from 0 to 10. At baseline, the mean pain score was 8.97, declining to 4.63 five minutes after treatment. So you could argue that there's some benefit for how the patients will feel. All right. And in terms of how good the Dermabond would be at keeping the tooth in good position and the fracture reduced? It seems to be an option. I would say I think of it as uh, you've got nothing else. I would say give it a try. And if it doesn't work, the patient is simply no worse off. All right. And again, I would think that it's important to make sure that that tooth is bone dry before you apply the uh, surgical skin glue, just like you need to make sure that the skin is dry before you apply surgical skin glue. Totally agree. We had mentioned using the metal nose bridge of an N95 mask as a splint for dental fractures and after reimplantation of an avulsion. This is, of course, if you don't have a proper splint. Dr. Nash, could you just describe how this is done? And we'll have some images in the in the show notes. I believe this was actually written up in the Annals of Emergency Medicine by Hans Rosenberg, who you probably know from EM cases, EM quick hits. So Dr. Nash, how do you go about using an N95 mask to splint a dental trauma? Sure. And I'll just reiterate, this is a temporizing fix, which we've already said a few times, but this is in absence of of better equipment, what you can use. You'll start by rinsing the teeth with a saline solution, especially if there's one that you're reimplanting. We've already talked about the management of that previously. If there's a socket to rinse, you'll rinse that with 20 to 40 mLs of saline solution, and then you'll pat it dry with a surgical sponge. And then gently, as gently as you can, reimplant the tooth if necessary into a satisfactory anatomic position versus if it's a a sublux tooth, just to try and realign it as best you can. You'll then pat the tooth dry, and just as was mentioned for the previous tip, you'll want to get this tooth and all the teeth that you'll be splinting as dry as possible, and then you'll apply some of that glue to all the teeth in the area. Uh, You'll want to make sure you have an appropriately sized N95 nasal bridge, 
cut to the length that you'll need and make sure that you're cutting it to splint to the teeth around the area of interest as well. Then you'll apply to the area where you have applied the glue and add additional glue as needed. Hold the splint under pressure for around one minute and then confirm stability. All right, great. So that's how to use the nasal bridge of an N95 mask as a splint if you don't have a proper splint. The other question that always seems to come up is what the best way to stop dental or oral bleeding is. You know, there's biting down on gauze, there's TXA. Dr. Nash, what's your approach to stopping dental bleeding in the emergency department? I mean, we seem to see this all the time. Yeah, it comes up, uh, man, at least once a month where I work. So recall that for calcium hydroxide, which you might be tempted to use, for that to work appropriately, you really need to have a totally dry area. So typically, you're going to be moving to something like gauze and applying pressure. And just like most areas of bleeding from some sort of tissue bed, the best thing to do is pressure. I commonly do apply TXA-soaked gauze to the area, and the amount you'll use is 500 milligrams in 10 mLs which is usually half of a vial, and hold pressure by having the patient bite down continuously without letting up for 30 minutes. Yeah, I just want to reiterate the continuously for 30 minutes there, because inevitably, you know, I'll have them bite down on some gauze impregnated with TXA, and I'll come back 10 minutes later, and it's half hanging out of their mouth, and they're not really biting down on a property. You really, I find you need someone there to kind of coach them along and really reiterate a few times that it's 30 minutes of constant biting and not checking every two minutes whether it's still bleeding or not. (laughs) I think of it like epistaxis, which has the same tendency on the part of your patients to just check and see how the progress has gone. You want to try and coach them. It's a half hour. Don't look. Pull out your phone. Do something else. But let's say that that's not super successful or not as successful as you'd like. You may think about injecting something like a local anesthetic combined with a vasoconstrictor, like 2% lidocaine with epinephrine into that area and the surrounding gingiva until the tissue blanches. That can help you with hemostasis as well. Thereafter, have the patient bite down into the gauze pad again, 30 minutes, 45 minutes. The patient will feel able to bite down harder as some of that pain is reduced, and the epinephrine with its vasoconstrictive properties can help to control the bleeding. That's a great second-line trick there. Yeah, just inject some 2% xylocaine with epinephrine, And I didn't really think about how I'm assuming one of the great advantages of that is that they'll be able to bite down much harder because my guess is that some of the reasons why plain gauze or gauze with TXA fails is because they're not really biting down hard enough. They're not applying enough pressure to that bleeding area. All right, Dr. Nash and Dr. No, let's do a bit of a back and forth with this one. What are some of the common pitfalls in the assessment and management of dental trauma in general? We'll take turns, you guys, and go back and forth. Just tell us what the common pitfalls that you see when you practice and and in the literature. One thing that is really important is to not miss any concomitant injuries. And so it's really important to be vigilant and suspect that there may be other issues if, for example, the patient is unable to open their mouth greater than five centimeters or if they have a positive tongue blade bite test. In this case, the patient may have a mandible fracture and would require a CT scan. One other trap to avoid falling into is a failure of warning your patients about post-dental trauma risks. For example, there could be tooth resorption issues, discoloration. They can get darker due to bleeding on the inside of the tooth that can change the color of the teeth, and that may be unavoidable. 
they may lose the teeth that were affected. It's also important to note that they may need a root canal, and that holds true for both dental trauma as well as dental infections, that they do need follow-up if they don't want their problem to recur or to get worse. Right. And another another issue, like we have mentioned previously, is that um, with avol's teeth, it's very, very important to not manipulate or touch the root whenever possible, because this could affect the ability for the tooth to be reintegrated into the oral cavity. One other thing to make sure you don't forget to do is to place the medicated dry socket dressing to prevent dry socket. Dry socket is pain that occurs, as we mentioned previously, a few days, three to five days after a tooth is extracted because the blood clot in the area has been dislodged. This is a reminder to irrigate, place that medicated dry socket dressing in the area, ideally with commercially made dressings, but iodoform gauze will likely be available in the ER and then they should follow up with a dentist. Fill it with something so the pain and the problem doesn't recur and they don't end up back in your emergency department. Right. And it's really important that they do see a dentist when the dry socket placement dressing is placed because you don't want to leave a dry socket dressing for a long period of time. And the next thing would be to make sure that we do not miss any potential aspirated tooth fragments. If a tooth is lost and cannot be accounted for and the patient may have possibly aspirated this tooth, then it's important to get a chest radiograph to rule out uh, bronchial aspiration. When thinking about replantation of avulsed teeth, don't forget that we're going to avoid replacing a permanent avulsed tooth if it's significantly fractured, particularly if the root is involved. Complicated crown fractures a fractured root or an alveolar ridge fracture, you should avoid replanting the tooth. Right. And finally, we should be sure not to replant any primary or baby teeth, as doing so would lead to ankylosis, which is fusing of the alveolar bone, the bone surrounding the teeth, and the tooth itself. And this would lead to a cosmetic and functional deformity and interfere with the eruption of the subsequent permanent adult teeth. Fantastic. That was such a, a great list of pitfalls to avoid. Everything from not re-implanting primary teeth, not trying to re-implant a fractured tooth, missing an inhaled foreign body fragment, failing to place a medicated dry socket dressing to prevent dry socket and to make sure that they get close follow-up so that they get the dressing replaced, and just making sure not to touch the root of the tooth for an avulsed tooth, making sure that you've educated your patients on discharge of what the possible post-dental trauma risks are, and then finally, not missing those concomitant injuries, particularly a, a mandible fracture. So that really nifty positive tongue blade bite test can come in helpful to help you suspect a, a mandibular fracture. The only other one that I would add in terms of pitfalls, which is true for pretty much any trauma, is failure to consider non-accidental trauma. And with oral trauma, some of the things that might tip you off that this might be non-accidental are a lip laceration or bruising in a non-ambulatory infant or a lingual or labial frenulum tear, again, especially in a a non-ambulatory infant, tongue lacerations in non-ambulatory infants, missing or fractured teeth with an absent or implausible history, maxillary or mandibular fractures, again, with uh, an absent or an implausible history. These are just some of the things that you might want to think about non-accidental trauma in. 
Just a reminder, the tickets for the fifth annual online podcast camp just went on sale and we only have 20 spots available at podcastcamp.org. This year, we have a new instructor, a very talented gentleman, the podcast host of the Internet Book of Critical Care podcast, Dr. Adam Thomas, as well as our keynote speaker, the rebel himself, Dr. Salim Rizay. You get a book on everything you need to know about podcast production, and I've carefully revised this book over the last five years, so it's pretty darn good. It's over three Thursday evenings, November 30th, December 7th, and December 14th, with lots of hands-on time in between, and the course culminates in the infamous Pod Wars, where you get specific feedback on the podcast that you work on throughout the course. It's a ton of fun. We dig deep into pre-production, recording technique, voice editing, sound design, hosting and posting, and I offer one-on-one coaching as well. More information and tickets at podcastcamp.org. And another exciting free offering that we'd like to serve to you is that our entire EM Cases Quiz Vault, that's about 150 episodes with about 10 quiz questions each episode, totaling about 1,500 questions, that will all be available for free as Anki card decks. We'll soon have a video explaining how to access the card decks on the EM Cases website. You'll need to first download Anki if you haven't already, and then you just need to search emergency medicine and you'll see our decks organized by medical category and then subdivided into episodes. Our goal is for you to learn as much as you can from the podcasts and reviewing the material using our quiz vault on the EM Cases site or the Anki cards is a great way to make it all stick. All right, back to dental trauma. In this entire podcast, we've been talking about dental pain, but we haven't really talked about exactly how to treat our patients' pain directly. And unfortunately, dental conditions have been one of the areas where we have overprescribed opioids. And unfortunately, many patients who get opioid prescriptions for dental pain will end up becoming dependent on those opioids. So let's talk a little bit about the best management of dental pain. Dr. Nash, what do you suggest we do both in the ED when we're seeing the patient to help relieve their pain and after they leave the emergency department? If the pain is only mild to moderate, I would recommend doing what we would typically do for that level of pain, NSAIDs or acenaminophen. You can also use topical anesthetics such as benzocaine 20% or other similar sorts of over-the-counter anesthetics. For more severe pain, you may need to consider use of opioids judiciously. And also, we'll talk about regional block options. You might consider doing, for maxillary teeth, a superperiosteal injection. And for the mandibular teeth, you may consider doing an inferior alveolar nerve block. There are other options, such as the palatine nerve block, or for the skin in the oral area, you may consider an infraorbital nerve block. But the two that we most recommend are the superperiosteal and the inferior alveolar nerve blocks. Yeah, great. I want to talk a little bit more about the various dental blocks. Dr. No, can you go over for us what drugs you use? Do you use bupivacaine? Do you use lidocaine? How much do you use? What are some of the tips and tricks and pearls and pitfalls when it comes to dental blocks? And if there was one that you would suggest that we learn in emergency medicine, you know, one or two that we learn, which ones would they be? So it's important to consider that with 
these blocks, these are all temporary measures because unfortunately they only last as long as the anesthetic will last. And we can kind of view them as a bridge until we can get the patient on PO meds such as acetaminophen, ibuprofen, and opioids as necessary. But if the patient is in extreme dental pain, then we can do blocks. I would categorize them as local infiltrative blocks for the maxilla, where you sort of just inject it into the vestibule area. And this is effective because the maxilla, compared to the mandible, is relatively porous. And so the anesthetic can diffuse across without doing a special kind of block. You pretty much just insert the needle into the vestibule and you inject some of the local anesthetic, whether that is lidocaine or rupivacaine. And then it'll be effective within seconds or within a minute. Because the mandible is much denser, unfortunately, these local infiltrative blocks are not as effective. And so a special block called the inferior alveolar nerve block, where we place anesthetic into the region of V3 branch of the trigeminal nerve, is what is necessary to adequately anesthetize the lower jaw. As I mentioned earlier, using bupivacaine is recommended over lidocaine just because it has a longer half-life and is effective for a longer period of time. All right, great. So uh, I guess an easy way to think of it is for the upper teeth or the maxillary teeth, just go right in between the the tooth and the lip essentially and just go right in there and squirt in a bit of uh, bupivacaine. And then for the lower teeth or the mandibular teeth, then really the inferior alveolar nerve block is the one that you want to use. We talked a little bit about the indications for antibiotics for atraumatic dental infections. What about for dental trauma? Dr. Nash, when would you give antibiotics after dental trauma? In general, evidence for antibiotics in dental trauma is rather poor. There's no clear evidence that shows that there's a benefit. Even for the worst fractures, the complicated fractures, the avulsions, although literature does not have strong evidence base at this time, you could justify either option in that setting. Since all the studies on this have been small, non-randomized, and not really powered to detect small differences. Right. I would consider um, giving antibiotics for dental trauma if there is an open fracture, open mandibular fracture, where the bone has essentially popped through the skin. In that case, antibiotics could be considered. But otherwise, a lot of these cases and these old school primary indications, it's sort of controversial. And generally, antibiotics are not given. Great. All right. Well, that about wraps it up for our two-part podcast series on dental emergencies. Uh, In this second part, we talked about tooth avulsions, fractures, stopping bleeding, splinting, indications for antibiotics, and a lot more. But I want to ask you both before we go, if there were one or two things that you think emergency physicians should take away from our discussion on dental emergencies, what would those one or two things be? Dr. Nash? Well, I think, and I don't know what your medical school was like, mine was minimal on dental uh, on dental issues. And patients who come to the ER with these problems are typically not the people who have ready access to an alternative, and they kind of just have you. So I think you should be willing to do your best that you can for these patients. Don't be afraid to try a splint. Your patient may have nothing else. Don't be afraid to try a nerve block to make the analgesia better if you need to drain a small abscess. Your patients may have no one else. And there are resources to help you in a just-in-time fashion. In addition to listening to this podcast, which will give you a great foundation, there's also resources available on Alium, Alium U, including some procedure videos that Dr. Noah and I made with 3D modeling to show you how to do these blocks. You can do this. This is is something that's well within your wheelhouse, and we do far crazier things in the emergency department. Fantastic. Yeah, we'll have some of those videos in the show notes for sure. 
And uh, Dr. No, if you could leave the listeners with one or two take-home messages, what would they be? I would say just be open to learning from specialists that you may consult or work with. We're more than happy to teach and share whatever knowledge we know. So don't be afraid to ask questions and don't be afraid to learn these skills because they're definitely skills that we can all learn and do and to better care for our patients. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for your insights into the wonderful world of dental emergencies. It's certainly one of those things that uh, before I started looking into this, I realized that I didn't know enough about. And certainly the next time I have a patient with a dental emergency, I'm going to feel more comfortable both with getting their pain under control, knowing what to do with the trauma or their infection, feeling more comfortable splinting and knowing when to ask for help. So thank you very much for your insights. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us. 